0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open together to the book of Revelation for the final time in our Advent sermon series. The sermon series was always planned to run past Christmas and into the last Sunday of December today. uh, And that is because we wanted to, to hit this high point in chapter 19. So open with me to Revelation 19 uh, and I I really hope uh, that you have enjoyed our sermon series in Revelation during the season of Advent in 2020. It's been a delight to to hear from some of you and some of your feedback and thoughts. Some of the responses that said, you know, when we first said we were going to do Advent and Revelation, it seemed like a, a real puzzle as to why we would do that or how it could possibly make sense. Uh, But I hope that you have been encouraged and challenged and stretched and and given uh, hope and peace at the thought of Christ triumphant in the book of Revelation. And that's been our big theme, Christ triumphant. Well, we come now to the the second half of our victory of Christmas uh, in the second half of Revelation 19. And as we are coming to that, we are coming together to the most exalted and glorious image of Jesus Christ uh, in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Uh, We've seen Him in Revelation 1 in His majesty. We have seen Him throughout uh, chapter 4 and 5 and 7 and 12 as He is worshipped in heaven's throne room. But here in chapter 19, we see the most exalted image of the glorious Christ, the triumphant Christ, And we want to get right to that this morning. So if you've got your Bible open, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures that we might understand them as He's given them to us this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask now for Your blessing to rest upon us as we read, as we hear, as we sit under the authority of Your Word this morning, as You revealed Yourself to John so that he might write to the church to give them hope and peace. We pray, Lord, that that spirit that so revealed Christ to John might be the spirit that illuminates our hearts and minds and ears, that we might see Jesus in all of his glory. Father, give us a sight of your Son this morning that is even more wonderful than we have ever thought in the past. And Lord, as we see it, Seal it to our hearts that we might love Him more fully and follow Him more sincerely. So come now, Lord, and bless Your Word to us, we pray. In the triumphant name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. And now hear God's Word from Revelation 19 at verse 11 through the end of the chapter under the heading, The Rider on a White Horse. This is the Word of God. by the sword that comes from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades but the Word of God abides forever. And so, let's give our attention here to Revelation 19. Well, I have waited until the last sermon in this series Uh, to mention a few realities about reading the book of Revelation. We have mentioned several times over that when you're reading the book of Revelation, you are reading apocalyptic literature. We go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which also translates the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, and by apocalyptic literature, you have extraordinary signs and symbols that communicate spiritual realities to us. That's very important. We've said that already, but what I haven't mentioned is something about how the book of Revelation is structured. The book of Revelation has a very particular structure that, by understanding it, will help us to interpret and recognize how the book of Revelation tells the story of God. And the book of Revelation tells the story of God in that it is structured by seven, seven progressive parallel revelations. Seven progressive parallel revelations. What I mean by that is that seven, seven different distinct sections telling a progressive story, meaning more and more detail as you go each time, telling the same parallel storyline, meaning... Seven different ways in the book of Revelation the exact same story is told about the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And the time between those two comings, that interadventual age, the church age, the age in which we live now, that time is described seven different ways. And really, if you pay attention, the final coming of Jesus, the final victory of Jesus happens seven different times in the book of Revelation. And so you go through a narrative and you press repeat and the story repeats itself. And as you get closer and closer to the end, the focus becomes more and more on what happens at the end. And that's how the book of Revelation is structured. It is not one chronological piece. It is seven progressive parallel pieces that tell the same story seven different ways, but the same story altogether. Now, that's important Because uh, here at the end of chapter 19, it seems like everything's over, right? But then when you launch into chapter 20, you get a new telling of the story. Well, that's helpful for us, but the main reason why I tell you that is because the point of the book of Revelation, start to finish, is to get the church to fix its eyes upon Jesus, its triumphant warrior king. We see that in chapter 19 in the most exalted way, and that is helpful for us because it keeps us from being distracted as many, many people are when they approach the book of Revelation. They're distracted by trying to figure out the book as it's some strange jigsaw puzzle that you need interpretive keys that are only available in the modern age. In fact, in the middle of the 20th century, it was a very popular interpretive key of the book of Revelation to say that the swarm of locusts of the evil kingdom represent Russian tanks during the Cold War period. And people are always trying to say, you know, there's these very strange interpretive keys that you need the modern area and, and newspaper articles to help you pick out. And, and to that, we should just say, no, no, no. The point of Revelation is not to unpick some details as if God has left you some strange jigsaw puzzle, but to see that the point of Revelation is to get you to look at Jesus Christ in all of His fullness and focus there. And the first verse of our text in chapter 19, verse 11, helps us to do that right away, to get a clear focus, to make sure we're looking in the right direction. Who is John looking at? Verse 11, he writes, "Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Here is the real focus of the book of Revelation. The focus is not on the church per se and its experience of suffering, The focus of the book of Revelation is not on the kingdoms of this world and the the trials and tribulation of this age or the wickedness of Satan's kingdom and the the serpent's rebellion. The focus of the book of Revelation is not just on the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ and His millennial kingdom. The focus of the book of Revelation as a whole is on the person and work of Jesus Christ who is called here faithful and true. Faithful and true. So what we have then is this, again, glorious and exalted image of Jesus Christ. And what we want to do is just, is just see it one piece at a time. These first six verses in verses 11 through 16 are entirely occupied with this extraordinary depiction of Jesus. I want us to appreciate the fact that John doesn't rush into an explanation about what this rider on the white horse does as he comes. He gets there to what he does, but before he speaks of what he does, he speaks with detail about who he is. As John lays eyes upon him, he doesn't rush too quickly to the unfolding plan of God across history. He lingers on the one sitting on this great white horse, Jesus Christ, the triumphant warrior king, He dwells on various components of what he looks like. And so for John and for us, it is far more important to understand who Christ is. It's more important to understand who he is than what he is doing. We have to see him for who he is before what he does. Everything else flows from this. And that's important to you and I because in the first century, the church needed to know who their Savior was in His state of glorious exaltation and returning one day. And you and I need to know that too. Before we can think about what He will do for us, we have to have the confidence about who He is for us, for a suffering church, for a church under persecution, bearing the weight of life in this fallen world. And I want to say to you that there's nothing more important than that for us. As 2020 comes to a close with all the things that you feel about 2020, regardless of what you think about it, all of your thoughts, all of your emotions, together we need to take all of that and look with anticipation to 2021 and understand that who Jesus Christ is will be the most important reality for us as the calendar flips. So we must linger with John on Jesus Christ. Or as we sing together, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Well, John's doing that. What does he see? Again, in verse 11, he's called faithful and true. That is to say, because he is faithful and true, he is the perfect judge. He is reliable. He is trustworthy. He is sound. As John looks into his face, he sees in verse 12, his eyes are like flames of fire. That is a That's a repetition from chapter 1, verse 14, where John said that the risen and reigning Christ had eyes like flames of fire, which is to say that Jesus sees and with His eyes He penetrates with vision with which nothing is hidden from His view. He looks with perfect, blazing purity upon all who come before Him to be judged and He sees and He knows. And He wears many diadems that's, that's been spoken of several different times. The idea of the crowns of diadems on his head, verse 12, are many diadems. Back in chapter 12, and we also uh, would note in chapter 13, the great dragon, the picture of Satan, the beast, the anti-Christian powers of the world, they wear many diadems. But we said that when we saw their diadems, they were false assertions of authority, false claims of arrogated authority. Their kingdoms are that of rivalry and rebellion. But Jesus, John is saying, is the true king. The true king of kings. And all the crowns of the land belong to him as their rightful Lord as he has upon his head the crown of many diadems. And more than that, you remember how back in Chapter 4, the 24 elders, they fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive honor and glory. And that image of the elders casting their crowns, throwing them down at the feet of Jesus, is a powerful image of believers surrendering themselves to the lordship of Christ, saying, You are king and You are Lord. And so here at the end, Jesus wears the crown that is representative of all crowns as he wears the crowns of believers upon his head that he is king not only of all nations, but he is king of your life is what his crown represents. He is your king. And do you notice at the end of verse 12, he says that he has a name written that no one knows but Himself. What a fascinating description that is. Right? Because we think we, we know about Jesus' various names. We even know of them from the prophecy of the Old Testament. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Right? These are names. The Shepherd, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Merciful One, King of Kings. These are all names that we call Jesus, and rightfully so. But John says that He has a name which you and I don't know, a name that He only knows but Himself. That is to say, that although Jesus Christ has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures, and although you by His mercy may know Him truly, and by God's grace you may grow to know Him more and more profoundly and deeply, nevertheless, you will never be able to know Jesus Christ Exhaustively, meaning that there are depths of wisdom and insight in Jesus Christ that will never be found. Infinite depths that you will gaze upon and never find the bottom. And I think that that is moving us to the point really of the everlasting joy of every citizen of the new heavens and new earth to spend eternity together discovering more and more of the wonders of our Savior. If you've ever stood on uh, the shore of an ocean and looked upon the waves as they come lapping up onto the sand, wave after wave after wave, if one wave turns into the next and recedes and comes up again. And you might stand there and look out the vast, infinite horizon and you wonder where does one wave begin and one wave end? And isn't this just this vast, Picture this infinite lapping of the waves on an ocean. Where is the beginning? Where is the end? And John is saying to know Jesus Christ, infinite fullness is to be amazed at Him and find no bottom to the infinite nature of His mercies and wonders. You will spend eternity seeing the mystery of His glorious person, one God, here in humanity, with two distinct natures, His humanity and His divinity, together, inseparable, not mixed, undivided in one person, Jesus Christ. There are depths of mystery and wonder in Jesus Christ that only He can fathom. He has a name that only He knows. And it will be our eternal joy to explore His majesty and His divinity and His mercy and His kindness and His patience and His grace to us forever down to the infinite ages of what awaits those who love Him in this age is an infinite eternity of beholding the face of Jesus with wonder. Look at verse 13. John says, This glorious Christ who is upon a white horse who comes to judge and make war, verse 13 says that He is clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And you might think that that kind of confounds the image of the whiteness and the purity. But why Why is there blood on the robe? There is blood on His robe before He comes to battle. Let's appreciate that. This is the picture of this epic battle. And Jesus Christ comes to wage war. And His robe is stained before He comes to the battle. And the question we should ask is, whose blood? With whose blood is Jesus Christ's robe stained? And there's only one answer throughout all the era of the Old and New Testaments and here in the book of Revelation there is one answer. The blood on His robe is His own blood. Stained with His own blood. The great truth that we must never lose sight of is that Jesus Christ reigns and conquers as the great warrior king not because He is going to win a battle that is still yet to be fought but because He has already triumphed in fullness by the blood of His cross. He has won the decisive victory at the cross and by His resurrection. He triumphs by His own blood. We triumph by His blood. He has shed His own blood and He is already triumphant and He rides to the final warfare with His robes stained in the blood of His own victory. And he is called at the end of verse 13 the Word of God. That's how John also identified Him in chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John, in the prologue of the Gospel, saying in chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how John tells the Christmas story. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and it is this same Word of God that comes here at the end, triumphant on a white horse to wage war. Can you hold those things together in your mind, in your heart? Can you hold the Christ of Bethlehem together with the, the Christ of triumphant procession to Jerusalem, humble and mounted on the foal, the colt of a donkey? And here now in the book of Revelation, mounted upon a steed, but this time not in the humility of a donkey, but in the exalted majesty of of a war horse. Can you hold all of Christ together in this way? Because that's who he is. The one who comes riding onto the battlefield of human history. The word of God. The one who reveals God. Who is God. Who makes all things. It makes sense then that the armies of heaven follow him as he goes out. Verse 14 says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, in the righteousness of Christ, follow him on white horses. Now, as the armies come out, the God who makes all things new, Jesus Christ, leads those armies. And the question, the big question of the book of Revelation is asking is, who can stand against this great king? Who can stand against the armies of heaven and their triumphant procession leader, Jesus Christ. That rhetorical question, who can stand against Jesus Christ, is where the rest of this chapter is looking. Because in verse 15 we read, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. The sword of His mouth, the word of the gospel, is the means by which the world is conquered. And the rod of iron from which He will rule the nations is a reference to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 where it says the Lord God establishes His Son on Zion, His holy hill to triumph over the rebellious nations. As 2020 comes to a close and we look down the corridors of a new year, it is this truth that we must reckon with. That He will rule. He will rule and reign over 2021. Because Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all history. He has no rival There is none to defeat him. He rides out with all of the armies of heaven and none can stand against him. And that's what we see. As ruler, he will put down fully and finally all of his enemies. That's what this chapter is moving towards. It may be difficult to digest. But don't forget that the kingdom of heaven is indeed opposed by great enemies. The forces of darkness and evil are hostile to Jesus' kingdom. Satan, that great serpent the book of Revelation has been telling us, seeks to deceive the church as the enemy of the people of God, the great serpent. But what becomes of him and all of his forces? What becomes of all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ as he has offered freely to them in the gospel? Revelation 19 tells us. But before we get to it, let me just remind you of something that Jesus said himself. Because I understand that for many of us, this is not the image of Jesus that we have when we think of Him. But when He was upon this earth, He said in John chapter 12, verse 14, He said this, The one who rejects Me, the one that does not receive My words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. And so when John describes Jesus here in chapter 19 saying He comes to judge and make war, it is not in contradiction to the image of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. It is the fulfillment of what Jesus has said in the Gospels here now. So as we look back to Revelation 19, we see that as ruler of all, John says in verse 15, Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of of the wrath of God the Almighty. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild as we see Him in His humanity when He was here on this earth, is, as He comes in His glorious appearing, the agent of the execution of the terrible fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And the way the Gospel presents this picture is that Jesus Christ as a merciful Savior stands in the gap so that the wrath of God might not fall upon us in condemnation for our sins. He sends the wrath of God away from us by His mercy. But for those who don't have a Savior, for those who think that their own good deeds will make up for their bad in the end and they will stand on their own righteousness before God, at the end of time, the wrath of God falls upon the unbeliever as a tidal wave of judgment. And this is no small thing. It is a terrible picture. Upon his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no injustice with this judgment because every opportunity has been made to find in Jesus Christ free mercy. You do not have to face the judgment of God if you would but come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. But if you deny Jesus Christ, if you forsake Him, you will find the terror of the wrath of God. Look at the effect of what happens as he rides forth in verses 17 to 21. There are two suppers in in this chapter. Earlier in chapter 19, we saw the marriage feast of the Lamb. Here in this chapter, the later part of it, in verses 17 through 21, this is a, a great supper of God's judgment. And everybody in all the world is invited to a supper It is just a question of will you come to the marriage feast of the Lamb and celebrate His mercy or will you be invited to the supper of God's judgment? The first picture is a picture of heavenly celebration. The second picture is one of everlasting condemnation as the birds of the air are invited to gorge themselves on the corpses of the defeated army. This is a picture of utter, utter devastation. The army is identified for us in verse 9. The beast and kings of the earth with their armies. Sorry, it's verse 19. The beast and kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. It's a futile gathering, though. Understand this that this, this final warfare. As the kingdoms of evil ride out over against the kingdom of Christ and his armies, it represents all of the satanic opposition to the kingdom of God in this world. In this world that we live in right now, there are battle lines being taken up against the Lord and his anointed. And the final battle for which they ready themselves, this final confrontation, this final epic conclusion is actually no battle at all. I think we need to appreciate that. The final battle for which the armies of darkness ready themselves against the armies of the kingdom of heaven is actually never fought. The armies that ride behind the triumphant Christ never engage. It's said that the church rides out in glory on their own white horses, but they never engage in warfare. Why? Because when Jesus Christ rides forth on His white horse, The beast is captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done signs. He slays them all. There is no battle because it is simply utter devastation. This Christ reigning over all of his enemies. And the point of all of this is is that Jesus wins decisively, utterly, victoriously over all his enemies. Jesus wins. There is no final battle. The world's power of sin and rebellion, the false religion that deceives the nations, are all dispatched to the lake of fire as the word of Christ slays all evil. If the world will not embrace the promises of the gospel of Christ's mercy, then it must endure the final judgment through Christ's own sword. At the conclusion of history, when Christ appears in glory, no matter how fiercely the nations will rage against. Him, he will put down all rebellion and reign over all of his enemies. Only by speaking a word from his mouth, it is all vanquished. This Christ. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this picture when he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, merely as a footstool. So, dear friends, What is the point of this? What is the point of the book of Revelation? What is the point of the Bible? What is the point of all of this? The point is this. Do you see Him? Do you see Him as a child in Bethlehem's manger where infinite divinity and frail humanity are mingled together in the tenderness of a baby? Do you see him in Jerusalem's temple interpreting the Old Testament to the professionals? Do you see him there? Do you see him as the ultimate teacher revealing the law of God to us? Do you see him with gentle kindness gathering the children? Do you see him as the sacrificial lamb beaten and scourged and crucified and dead Do you see Him as the victorious, risen Savior, emptying the grave and death of all of His power? Do you see Him as the ascended Savior, reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Do you see Him as the interceding Savior, ready to hear your prayers and give you help as you come to Him? Do you see Him as the returning Savior who comes to bring the fullness of His kingdom and wipe out for all eternity every force of opposition to his glorious kingdom of love and grace. Do you see Jesus Christ, the glorious Christ, the triumphant Christ, your savior? The response to that is simply to say, hallelujah, what a savior he is. Lord, bring your kingdom and may it come in my life, in your life, and in the lives of all those who love the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, as we fix our gaze upon you, and we say that you are the glorious Christ, the triumphant one, who rules all history and therefore rules our lives. Lord, reign in us. Fill us with love for you, we pray. In your matchless name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.